Section 34 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music. Chapter 13, Part 2, Verdi and His Contemporaries. With Louisa Miller begins what is usually known as Verdi's Second Period, the period in which he shook himself free from the grandiose bombast from which none of his earlier works is entirely free. In this so-called second period, he becomes more restrained, more coherent, more net. He leans somewhat more to the suave cantable of Bellini and Donizetti, a little more, if the truth be told, to the trite and mawkish. Camerano fashioned the libretto of Louisa Miller from Schiller's immature Cavallo und Liebe. It was a moderately good libretto, and moderately good perhaps sufficiently describes the music which Verdi wrote to it. Stifelio, a work of little merit with a poem by Piave, was the next product of Verdi's second manner. It was given without success at the Grand Theatre Trieste in November 1850. After Stifelio, however, there came in rapid succession from Verdi's pen three works whose enormous success consummated his fame, and whose melodiousness has since re-echoed continuously from every opera stage and street organ in the universe. When Stefelio was produced, he was under contract with the impresario Lassina to write an opera for the Venice of Venice. At his request, Piave again made free with Victor Hugo, choosing this time the unsavoury melodrama Le Rossamuse, which he adopted under the title of La Melodizione. When the Italian police got wind of the project, however, there was serious trouble. Le Rossamuse contains some implied animadversions on the morals of royalty and the censorship absolutely forbade the appearance in Italy of such an iniquitous trifling with a sacrosanct subject. Verdi, who possessed a generous share of obstinacy, refused to write an opera on any other subject, to the despair of the Venice management, who had promised the Venetians a new opera by the illustrious maestro. A way out of the impasse was finally found by a commissary of police named Martello, who advised some substitution in the names of the characters, such as the Duke of Mantua for the king, and also suggested the title Rigoletto Buffone di Corte. These suggestions proved acceptable to Verdi, and within forty days the score of Rigoletto was written and orchestrated from first note to last. Its premiere on March 11, 1851, was an unqualified success. The too famous canzone La Donna Immobile caused a sensation which was so accurately foreseen by the composer that he would not put it to paper until a few hours before the performance. Rigoletto was presented at the Italian Opera, Convent Garden, London, in the season of 1853, and at the Théâtre Italien, Paris, on January 17, 1857. Its London reception was very cordial. Certainly, Rigoletto marks a decided advance on its predecessors. It is simpler in design, more economical of material, more logically developed and dramatically more legitimate, notwithstanding such puerilities as Gilda's eccentric and irrelevant aria in the garden scene. There are present also signs which seem to indicate the influence of Meyerbeer, but it is difficult to trace specific influences in the work of a man of such absorbing individuality as Verdi. After Rigoletto came Il Travatore, which was produced at the Apollo Theatre, Rome, on January 19, 1853, and was received with extraordinary enthusiasm. From Rome it spread like wildfire throughout Italy, everywhere achieving an overwhelming success. In Naples, three houses gave the opera at about the same time. Soon all the capitals in Europe were humming its ingratiating melodies. Paris saw it at the Théâtre Talion in December 1854, London at Convent Garden in May 1855. Even Germany extended to it a warm and smiling welcome. 
Truly, Il Travatore is to an extent unique in operatic annals. It probably enjoys the distinction of being the most popular and least intelligible opera ever written. The rambling and inchoate libretto was made by Camarano from El Travador of the Spanish dramatist Antonio Garcia Gutierrez, and nobody has ever lived who could give a succinct and lucid exposition of its story. For that reason, probably, the work as a whole is such as to deserve the name of A Concert in Costume, which someone has aptly applied to it. Verdi could not possibly have woven a dramatic score of consistent texture round such a literary nightmare. What he did do was to write a number of very pleasing solos, duets and trios, together with some theatrical and ingratiating orchestral music. Anyone inclined to question the theatricalism of the score may be interested in comparing the Anvil Chorus of Il Travadore with the Forging of the Sword episode in Siegfried. Still, one cannot deny distinct merit to a work which has held a place in the affections of millions of people for more than half a century. Its amazing popularity when it spread contagiously over Europe aroused a storm of critical comment which reads amusingly at this day. In the eyes of Verdi's enthusiastic protagonists, Il Trovatore naturally marked the zenith of operatic achievement, while his antagonists placed it unequivocally at the nadir of uninspired and commonplace triviality. La Traviata sounds like a feminine counterpart of Il Travatore, which it followed and with which it has been so often associated on operatic bills. The two works, however, are drawn from widely different sources, and are about as dissimilar in every way as any other two operas of Verdi which might be mentioned. Piave made the libretto of La Traviata from La Dame Camellia of Alexandre Dumas, fils. The subject does not appear to be an ideal one for musical treatment but it is of a style which seems to have a peculiar appeal to composers, as witness Bohème, Sappho, Manon, and many others. One is inclined to award to the Traviata a very high place among Verdi's works. It stands alone among them, absolutely different in style and manner from anything else he has done. There is in it a simplicity, a sparkle, a grace, a feminine daintiness, an enticing languor, a spirit quite thoroughly Gallic suggesting, as Berevi has observed, the style of the opera comique. Confer, Chapter 1 La Traviata, produced at Venice in 1853, was a flat failure, partly owing to the general incapacity of the cast. About a year later, with some changes, it was reproduced in Venice and proved a brilliant success. Two years of silence followed La Traviata. During that time, Verdi was engaged on a work which the management of the Paris opera, passing over Hubert, Berlioz and Alouvet, had commissioned him to write for the Universal Exhibition of 1855. The libretto was made by Scribe and Duverrier and dealt with the sanguinary episode of the French-Italian War of 1282, known as the Sicilian Vespers, a peculiar subject to select under the circumstances. After an amount of delay caused by the eccentric disappearance of the beautiful Sophie Cruvelli, idol of contemporary Paris, Les Vepris Siciliennes was produced at the Opera in 1855. It was received with great enthusiasm, but did not outlive the popularity of its first prima donna. It was followed by Simon Bacanegra, composed to a poem adapted by Piave from Schiller's Fieschi, which, produced at the Venice Venice in 1857 with little success, was later revised by that excellent poet, Aurigo Boito, and with the music recast by Verdi, was received at La Scala, Milan, in 1881, with distinct favour. Verdi's next opera, on Balu and Maschiera has a peculiar history, turning on the curious interaction of art and politics, which is such a feature of Verdi's career. It was adapted from the Gustave Toi of Scribe, which Aubert had already set to music for the Paris opera, and was at first entitled La Vendette in Domino. 
Written for the San Carlo Theatre, Naples, it was about to be put into rehearsal when word arrived of the attempted assassination of Napoleon III by Orsini. The Italian police, morbidly sensitive in such matters, at once forbade the representation of Anbalo and Maschiera without radical modifications, and Verdi, with his customary obstinacy, empathetically refused to make any alteration whatsoever. Even when the San Carlo management instituted a civil action against him for 200,000 francs, Verdi declined to budge. He was openly supported in his attitude by the entire population of Naples, which greeted his appearance everywhere with the enthusiastic shouts of Viva Verdi! Eventually, feeling that the affair would create a revolution on its own account, the authorities requested Verdi to take himself and his opera out of Naples. The opera was then secured by Iacovacci, the famous impresario of the Apollo Theatre in Rome, who swore that he would present it in that city at any cost. I shall arrange with the censor, with the cardinal governor, with St. Peter if necessary, he said. Within a week, my dear maestro, you shall have the libretto with all the visus and all the bon pelechine possible. Nevertheless, the papal government did not prove so tractable, and before Anbalo and Maschiera could appear in Rome, the scene of action had to be shifted from Sweden to America, and the character of Gustave Trois transmogrified into the Earl of Warwick, governor of Boston. Indifferent to historic accuracy, however, Rome received the opera with enthusiasm when it was produced in February 1859. Upon the occasion of its presentation at the Théâtre Italien, Paris, on January 13, 1861, the scene was shifted to the Kingdom of Naples, where it still remains, because Mario refused to wear the costume of a New England Puritan at the beginning of the 18th century. Anbalo and Maschiera was given in London in 1861, and was received very cordially. It is, in effect, one of the most mature works of Verdi's second manner. Still more mature and suggestive of what was to come is La Vorza del Destino, which was written for the Imperial Theatre of St. Petersburg and was produced there on November 10, 1862, encountering merely a succès d'estime. Repellently gloomy and gruesome is the story of La Forza del Estino, adapted by Piave from Don Alvar, a tragedy in the exaggerated French romantic vein by Don Angel de Saavedra. The oppressive libretto perhaps accounted in large measure for the lack of success which attended the opera, not only in St. Petersburg, but in Milan, where it was produced at La Scala in 1869 and in Paris, where the Théâtre d'Alion staged it in 1876. Yet La Forza del Destino contains some of the most powerful, passionate and poignant music that Verdi ever wrote, and one can see in it more clearly than in any of his other works suggestions of that complete maturity of genius which was to blossom forth in Aida, Othello and Falstaff. For the sake of completeness, we may mention here as the chronologically appropriate place Verdi's Lino delle Nazioni written for the London International Exhibition of 1862 as part of an international musical patchwork in which Aubert, Meyerbeer, and Sterndale Bennett also participated. Lino della Nazione may be forgotten without damage to Verdi's reputation. Notwithstanding the indifferent reception accorded Les Vepris Siciliens in Paris, the management of the opera again approached Verdi when a new gala piece was needed for the Universal Exhibition of 1866. The opera management was singularly unfortunate in its experience with Verdi. For this occasion, the composer was supplied by Marie and Camille Ducle with an indifferent libretto called Don Carlos, and he was unable to rise above its level. Don Carlos, however, was but the darkness before the dawn of a new period more brilliant and glorious than was dreamed of even by those of Verdi's admirers who did him the highest reverence. At that time, Wagner had not yet come into his own and in the eyes of the world at large, Verdi stood absolutely without peer among living composers. 
Consequently, when Ishmael Pasha, Khedive of Egypt, wished to add luster to the beautiful opera houses he had built in Cairo, he could think of nothing more desirable for the purpose than a new work from the pen of the great Italian. That nothing might be wanting to make such an event a memorable triumph, Mariette Bay, the distinguished French Egyptologist, sketched out as a subject for the proposed work a stirring, colourful story, recalling vividly the picturesque glories of ancient Egypt. This story set fire to Verdi's imagination. Under his direction, a libretto in French prose was made from Mariette's sketch by Camille Dulocle and done into Italian verse by A. Gislanzoni. So ardently did Verdi become enamoured of the work that within a few months he had handed to Ismail Pasha the completed score of Aida. The opera was to be performed at the end of 1870, but owing to a number of causes, including the imprisonment of the scenery within the walls of Paris by the besieging Germans, its performance was delayed for a year. It was finally given on December 24, 1871, before a brilliant cosmopolitan audience and amid scenes of the most intense enthusiasm. Contrary to a widespread impression, Aida was not written for the opening of the Cadival Opera House, that event having taken place in 1869. It may also be observed that the story of Aida has no historical foundation, though it was written with an expert eye to historical and archaeological verisimilitude. The success of Aida was overwhelming, nor was it due, as in the case of so many other Verdi operas, to causes extraneous to the work itself. Milan, which heard Aida on February 7, 1872, received it with an applause which rivaled in spontaneous verve the enthusiasm of Cairo, and the verdict of Milan has been empathetically endorsed by every important opera house in the world. Within three years, beginning on April 22, 1876, the Théâtre Talion presented it 68 times to appreciative Parisian audiences, and later, at the Opéra, its reception was still enthusiastic. England, hitherto characteristically somewhat cold to Verdi, greeted Aida warmly when it was given at Convent Garden in 1876, and bestowed upon the work the full measure of its critical approval. Aida was the storm centre around which raged the first controversy touching the alleged influence of Wagner on Verdi. In Aida, apparently, we find all the identifying features of the modern music drama as modelled by Wagner. There is the broad declamation, the dramatic realism and coherence, the solid, powerful instrumentation, the deposition of the voice from its commanding position as the all-important vehicle, the employment of the orchestra as the principal exponent of colour, character, expression putting the statue in the orchestra and leaving the pedestal on the stage, as Gretry said of Mozart. Yet, in spite of all this, in spite of much specious critical reasoning to the contrary, Aida is altogether Verdi, and there is in it of Wagner not a jot, not a tittle. It is, of course, impossible to suppose that Verdi was unacquainted with Wagner's works, and equally impossible to suppose that he remained unimpressed by them, but Verdi's was empathetically not the type of mind to borrow from any other. He was an exceptionally introspective, self-centred and self-sufficient man. Besides, he was concerned with the development of the Italian lyric drama purely according to Italian taste, and in directions which he himself had followed more or less strictly from the beginning of his career. From the propaganda of Wagner he must inevitably have absorbed some pregnant suggestions as to musical dramatics, particularly as Wagner was in that respect the voice of the zeitgeist. But of specific Wagnerian influence in his music, there is absolutely no trace. Anyone who follows the development of Verdi's genius from Nabucco can see in Aida its logical maturing. No elements appear in the latter opera which are not appreciable in embryo in the former, 
between them lies simply 30 years of study, knowledge, and experiment. During a period of enforced leisure in 1873, Verdi wrote a string quartet, the only chamber music work that ever came from his fertile pen. His friend, the noble and illustrious Manzoni, passed away in the same year, and Verdi proposed to honour his memory by composing a requiem to be performed on the first anniversary of his death. The municipality of Milan entered into the project to the extent of planning an elaborate public presentation of the work at the expense of the city. Verdi had already composed a libera me for a mass which, in accordance with suggestions made to him by Tito Ricordi, was to be written in honour of Rossini by the leading composers of Italy. For some undiscovered reason or reasons, this mass was never given. The libera me, which Verdi wrote for it, however, served as a foundation for the new mass in memory of Manzoni. On May 22, 1874, the Manzoni Requiem was given at the Church of San Marco, Milan, in the presence of musicians and dilettanti from all over Europe. Later, it was presented to enthusiastic audiences at La Scala, at one of the matinee spirituelles of the Salle Favard, Paris, and at the Royal Albert Hall, London. Hans von Bülow, with Teutonic emphasis, has characterized the Requiem as a monstrosity. While the description is perhaps extreme, it is, from one point of view, not altogether unjustified. Certainly, a German critic having in mind the magnificent classic structures of Bach, Mozart and Beethoven could hardly look with tolerance upon this colourful expression of southern genius. The Manzoni Requiem is, in fact, a complete contradiction of itself, and as such can hardly be termed a successful artistic achievement. The odour of the coulisse rather than that of the sanctuary hangs heavily about it. But if one can forget that it is a mass, and listen to it simply as a piece of music, then the Requiem stands revealed for what it is, a touching, noble, and profound expression of love and sorrow for a friend departed. This is Verdi's only important essay in sacred music, though mention may be made of his colourful and dramatic Stabat Mater, written in 1898. A five-act opera entitled Montezuma, which Verdi wrote in 1878, may be passed over with the remark that it was produced in that year at La Scala Milan. Then, for nearly ten years, Verdi was silent. The world was content to believe that his silence was permanent, that the marvellously productive career of the great master had come to a glorious and fitting close in Aida and the Requiem. Nobody then could have believed that Aida, far from making the accumulation of Verdi's achievement, was but the beginning of a new period in which his genius rose to heights that dwarfed even the loftiest eminence of his heyday. There is nothing in the history of art that can parallel the final flight of this man, at an age when the wings of creative inspiration have usually withered into impotence or crumbled into dust. Under these circumstances one can, of course, very easily overestimate the aesthetic value of the last works of Verdi, surrounded as they are in one's imagination with the halo which the venerable age of their creator has inevitably lent to them. As a matter of fact, the ultimate place of Verdi's last works in musical history, it is not within our power to determine. The mighty weapon of popular approval, which bestows the final accolade or delivers the last damning thrust according to one's point of view, has as yet missed both Othello and Falstaff. Critics differ, as critics will and ever did. Musically, dramatically, formally and technically, Othello and Falstaff are the most finished examples of operatic composition that Italy has ever given to the world. And even outside Italy, if one accepts the masterpieces of Wagner, it is doubtful if they can be paralleled. Whether also they possess the divine spark which alone gives immortality is a moot point, we cannot say. 
The goddess of fortune, who on the whole kept ever close to Verdi's side, secured for him in his cumulating efforts the collaboration of Aurego Boito, a poet and musician of exceptional gifts. Undoubtedly, Boito made very free with Shakespeare in his libretto of Othello, but compared with previous attempts to adapt Shakespeare for operatic purposes, his version is an absolute masterpiece. Even more remarkable and much more faithful to the original is his version of Falstaff, which, taken by and large, is probably the only perfect opera libretto ever written. Othello is a story which might be expected to find perfect understanding and sympathy in the mind and temperament of an Italian, and consequently the faithful preservation of the original spirit is not so remarkable. But that an Italian should succeed in retaining through the change of language the thoroughly English flavour of Falstaff is truly extraordinary. Othello was produced on February 5, 1887, at La Scala Milan. That it was a brilliant success is not artistically very significant. Verdi to the Milanese was something less than a god and more than a composer. Its first performance at the Lyceum Theatre, London, in July 1889, and at the Paris Opéra on October 12, 1894, were both gala occasions, and the enthusiasm which greeted it may safely be interpreted, in part, as a personal tribute to the venerable composer. Outside of such special occasions, and in the absence of the leather-tongued tamango, Othello has always been received with curiosity, with interest, with respect, with admiration, but without enthusiasm, and, generally speaking, without appreciation. A certain few there are whose appreciative love of the work is fervent and sincere, but the attitude of the public at large toward Othello is not sympathetic. Much the same may be said of the public attitude towards Falstaff though the public, for some reason difficult to fathom, is provided with comparatively few opportunities of becoming familiar with this greatest of all Verdi's creations. Excepting the Meistersinger and Le Nozze di Figaro, there is nothing in the literature of comic opera that can compare with Falstaff, and in its dazzling, dancing exuberance of youth and wit and gaiety it stands quite alone. Falstaff, says Richard Strauss, is the greatest masterpiece of modern Italian music, it is a work in which Verdi attained real artistic perfection. The action in Falstaff, James Huneker writes, is almost as rapid as if the text were spoken, and the orchestra, the wittiest and most sparkling riant orchestra I ever heard, comments upon the monologue and dialogue of the book. When the speech becomes rhetorical, so does the orchestra. It is heightened speech, and instead of melody of the antique, formal pattern, we hear the endless melody which Wagner employs. But Verdi's speech is his own, and does not savour of Wagner. If the ideas are not developed and do not assume vaster proportions, it is because of their character. They could not be so treated without doing violence to the sense of proportion. Classic purity in expression, Latin exuberance, joyfulness, and inexpressibly delightful atmosphere of irresponsible youthfulness and gaiety are all in this charming score. Nowhere in Falstaff do we find the slightest suggestion of Wagner. Its spirit is much more that of Mozart. Naturally, it invites comparison both with the Meistersinger and with Figaro, but the comparison in either case is futile. In form and content, Falstaff is absolutely sui generis. La Scala, which witnessed the first Verdi triumph, also witnessed his last. Falstaff had its premiere there on February 9, 1893, in the presence of the best elements in music, art, politics and society to quote a contemporary correspondent of the London Daily Graphic. The audience, so we are informed, grew wildly riotous in its enthusiasm. Even the best elements so far forgot themselves as to wax demonstrative. 
while that part of the population of Milan, which was not included in the audience, held a demonstration of its own after the performance in front of Verdi's hotel, forcing the aged composer to spend most of the night walking back and forth between his apartment and the balcony, that he might listen to the reiterated appreciations of an opera which the majority of the demonstrators had not heard. Paris heard Falstaff at the Opera Comique in April 1894, and London at Convent Garden in the following month. Falstaff was the crowning effort of a distinguished genius, of a composer who had shed great luster on the fame of Italian music, of a man venerable in age and character and achievement. It was Verdi's swan song. He died in Milan on January 27, 1901. Space does not permit us to speak of Verdi's personality, his private life, or the many honours and distinctions which came to him. The reader is referred to Verdi, Man and Musician, by F. J. Crowest, New York, 1897, and Verdi, An Anecdotic History, by Arthur Pugnin, London, 1887. Verdi's extended career brings practically every 19th-century Italian composer of note within the category of his chronological contemporaries. But of contemporaries in the philosophical sense, he had practically none worthy of mention. Rossini, Bellini, Donizetti, Mercadante, Federico and Luigi Ricci all outlived the beginning of Verdi's artistic career. E. Puritani first appeared in 1834, Don Pasquale in 1843, the Crispino e la Comari of the Ricci brothers in 1850. Rossini died only three years, and Mercadanti only one year before Aida was produced, though both had long ceased to compose. But all of these men belong artistically to a period prior to Verdi. Many of the younger Italians, including Mascagni, Leoncavello, and Puccini, had already attracted attention when Falstaff appeared, but they again belong to a later period. Boito, Arrigo Boito, born Paiuda, 1842, composer and poet, studied at the Milan Conservatory, see Volume 3. It's hard to classify. He is the Berlioz of Italian music. On a smaller scale, a polygonal figure, which does not seem to fit into any well-defined niche. His Mephistofeli was produced as early as 1868. Yet he seems to belong musically and dramatically to the post-Wagnerian epoch. Apart from those who were just beginning or just ending their artistic careers, Italy was almost barren of meritorious composers during most of Verdi's life. It would appear as if that one gigantic tree absorbed all the nourishment from the musical soil of Italy, leaving not enough to give strength to lesser growths. Of the leading Italian composers chosen to collaborate on the Mass in honour of Rossini, not one, except Federico Ricci and Verdi himself, is now remembered. Besides Verdi and Ricci, the list included Buzzola, Bazzini, Pedrotti, Cagnoni, Nini, Bouchron, Coccia, Jasperi, Platania, Petrella, and Mabellini. Mercadanti was omitted because his age and feeble health rendered it impossible for him to collaborate in the work. Jaspari is still in some repute as a musical historiographer. There remains Amilcare Ponchielli, 1834-86, who is important as the founder of the Italian realistic school, which has given to the world Di Pagliacci, Cavalleria Rusticana, Le Gioia della Madonna, and other essays in bloodletting brutality. His operas include I Promessi Sposi, 1856, La Savoyarda, 1861, Rodirica, 1864, La Stella da Monte, 1867, La Due Generale, 1873, La Gioconda, 1876, Il Filiol Prodicio, 1880, and Marion dell'Orme, 1885. Of these, only La Gioconda, which still enjoys an equivocal popularity, has succeeded in establishing itself. 
Ponchielli wrote an amount of other music, sacred and secular, but none of it calls for special notice, except for the Garibaldi hymn, 1882, which is likely to live after all his more pretentious efforts have been forgotten. There is nothing more to be said of Verdi's contemporaries. The history of his career is practically the history of Italian music during the same time. He reigned alone in unquestionable supremacy, and whatever the future may have in store for Italy, it has not yet disclosed a worthy successor to his vacant throne. End of section 39. Read by Fern Bartley. End of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism, by the National Society of Music.